0: Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. In the early morning hours of August 10th of 1984, Deborah Sykes, a 25-year-old copy editor at a local newspaper, was assaulted and murdered on the outskirts of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Following the murder, a local man came forward and told the police that he had seen Deborah Sykes with an African-American man on the morning of that crime. The man described the man with Deborah Sykes with a description that matched a man by the name of Daryl Hunt. The police arranged a lineup, and the witness tentatively identified Daryl Hunt as the man he had seen with Deborah Sykes. Daryl Hunt was eventually arrested on first-degree murder charges for the murder of Deborah Sykes. Eyewitnesses brought forth by the prosecution testified that they had seen Hunt, the victim before the crime, with the victim before the crime. Hunt testified on his own behalf that he didn't know the victim and had nothing to do with the crime. Hunt was convicted and was sentenced to life in prison. Hunt's original attorney worked on the case for nearly 20 years, and eventually Hunt's attorneys filed for DNA testing. In October of 1994, DNA results came back. Hunt's DNA did not match the sample found on the victim's body at the crime scene, but despite the results, however, Hunt's appeals were rejected on the grounds that the new evidence did not prove innocence. Finally, in 2004... 19 years after Hunt was convicted and 10 years after he was first excluded by the DNA, the DNA profile from the crime scene was run in the state database at the request of Hunt's attorneys. The results matched a man incarcerated for another murder. Hunt was exonerated and freed in 2005, and he was arrested, and this all began because of wrongfully being convicted, all based upon the wrong judgment from other people. People assumed that he was wrong, they judged him to be wrong, and he was wrongfully convicted and served many years in prison. Every single day, people face unfair and unnecessary judgment from other people. But on the flip side, every single day, people wrongfully stereotype and judge others with unfair assessments and accusations. From a spiritual standpoint, there are many people today that no longer attend church because of attending a body of believers whom the congregation wrongfully judged them because of whatever fill in the blank. As a result of the hurt and the confusion of the improper judgment, that has created, coupled with society's push to be tolerant and acceptable, many Christians are left confused when it comes to this topic of whether or not we should or should not judge other people. Do we judge and discern, or do we avoid anything for fear of hurting someone else's feelings or ruining an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus or being canceled? How does a Christian navigate this topic of judgment and discernment? And this is exactly what Jesus talks about in our next section of Matthew in Matthew chapter 7. Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 7 if you would. If you do not have a Bible, I haven't said this in quite a while, but I want to make sure that you are aware of this. If you do not have a paper Bible, we want to give you one this morning that you can keep Uh, located on that back table. And uh, if you need one now, you feel free to go grab one. But there are, I see two of them sitting right there. We want you to be able to take that Bible home and use that. We want you to have a paper Bible. I know you got it on your phone, but it's always good to be able to have that in paper as well. But Jesus is now uh, kind of nearing the end of his Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through this series for several weeks now and that's nothing compared to a pastor whom I heard uh, talked about last night. We were at a gathering and they said that their church is also going through Sermon on the Mount and they were at message 26 and they weren't even in like Matthew six yet, and so you could go a whole lot deeper than what I'm doing, but I, I don't. That's not my purpose. Is to try to get extremely deep in this. I want to give you the overview, so you can go home and go deep into it uh, on your own time. But for those of you that are joining, or maybe haven't been here in a while, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus delivering to kingdom citizens kingdom principles for kingdom living. The Sermon on the Mount was was is for it's intended for genuine followers of Christ. It's not just for anyone to hear this. It is for those that are part of the kingdom of. God. And so Jesus is calling us to live in a much greater way than what they've been heard to live, which is just the simple keeping of the law. He's calling us to a greater way of living. And he says, if you want to function properly within the kingdom of God, then apply these principles. And so Jesus, he he really goes hard at it. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus uh, really kind of addresses the heart of man overall. He says that it is not good for you just to simply keep the external parts of the law. In other words, you don't physically commit murder. You don't physically commit adultery. If you think about a person in a lustful way, if you think about a hatred or hate someone in your heart, then you're doing the same thing as committing it physically. That's what Jesus is saying. He's holding us to a much higher standard. And so if you could really summarize Matthew chapter 5, it's addressing the heart of man. He moves into Matthew chapter 6, and he uh, now focuses on really the the reason as to why we do certain things. In other words, the motivation behind why we do what we do. He's calling us in Matthew chapter 6 to live for the glory of God alone and not for the glory of man or anyone else. The glory of self, however you want to define that. And then as we move into Matthew chapter 7, which we begin to do so here this morning, and we round this out over the next several weeks, Jesus closes his sermon by taking time to define between those who are genuine followers of Christ and those who are fake. In other words, those that are fake fans versus those that are genuine followers. And Jesus has a two-fold purpose all throughout Matthew chapter 7. His first purpose is this, to define what the fake fans look like. What does it look like to pretend to be a follower of Christ? You as a Christian, what does it look like to discern between those that are not genuine followers of Christ? And his second purpose is to urge Christians to be discerning when it comes to those whom we ought to follow and those whom we ought to separate from. So Jesus brings a lot of clarity for us in Matthew chapter 7. And so uh, for the remainder part of, of this series, I have a, another mini-series title, and that title is this, Good versus Evil. Good versus Evil. Jesus defines for us the difference between good and evil in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Pastor Bryce will talk about this in a couple of weeks, but Jesus says this in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, the defining point between good and evil with Jesus is not based upon the actions or the claims of the individual, but based upon those who, what, do the will of the Father in heaven. Well, what is that? What is the will of God? And that's a huge question. But in this particular context, here, the will of God is to repent and believe to repent and believe. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us all, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Repentance is a turning away from sin, the lifestyle that we have before God, and turning to God. Uh, there's many people that, as you heard the phrase, that miss heaven by 12 inches, from their head to their heart. There's a lot of people that believe in God. They believe in the concept of God. They appreciate the concept of God. They believe in spirituality, but that does not mean they're genuine followers of Christ. To repent is to accept the facts about God into your heart and to give your life to God. It is a, it, it, we talk about this term, the, the perseverance of the saints. In other words, a defining factor of those that are genuine followers are those that live their entire life committed to God. Is a conversation that you could have that we won't go into this morning, and that is this term of the backslidden Christian. You've heard this before, that Christian was backslidden for many, many, many years. I'm not here to look at anybody's heart, but I'm very, I'm very careful in using that term backslidden Christian because I don't know if that is something that is actually facts a backslidden Christian. In other words, a Christian that professes Christianity but that lives a lifestyle for several years that does not portray Christianity by any means and all of a sudden they get their life back on track. I don't believe, according to Scripture, that somebody can walk away from God for several years and still be considered a Christian. A person that gives their life to Christ, there has to be repentance involved. It's not good works. In other words, you don't live every single day trying to pursue God in order to secure your spot in heaven. No, genuine Christianity is a person that says, I'm a sinner, I'm tired of my sin, here's my life, God, and they evidence that conviction, they evidence that transformation through their day-to-day life. Now, there's periods of time as a Christian where you are further away from God than you were before, but to live a life habitually, and that's something that every Christian must take to heart as to whether or not they're genuine followers. And so in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, it says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made known unto salvation. And so those that are good, those that are righteous, are those that have given their life to Christ, they have repented, and they believed. Those that are evil are those that have not done so. Okay. So within the context of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, the will of the Father is that all would come into salvation, but the only way that we can come through salvation is to become righteous and holy. So as we continue on in this morning, we're going to talk about this subject of judging other people, which is necessary within this Christian life, but to do so effectively. So the title of our message this morning is this, Good versus Evil Part 1, How to Judge Others Effectively. The English language is perhaps the most difficult language to grasp. Okay. Um, Elaine, you are in an English major, is that correct? But you have English background, okay? Um, not that you speak it. You know more about the English language than what I would <laughs> So some of you have heard of this this phrase called homonyms or this word homonyms. Now, for those of you, um, raise your hand if English is not your mother tongue. If that is not your first language, raise your hand, okay? There's a few of you here and there's others that are part of our church that are traveling, okay? For us, we take English for granted. For those like Kyung Tae and Tebow and Erica, it's a little bit more difficult to understand the difference between that, that phrase, that homonym. That word homonym means this. I'm going to look it down because I don't remember off the top of my head. They are words that have different meanings, but they are spelled the same and or they are pronounced the same. But it gets even more complicated because alongside of homonyms, you have homophones and homographs, okay? You guys have heard those before, probably way back in the day when you took English class. A homograph is a word that has the same spelling as another word, but has a different sound and different meaning. For example, the word lead, L-E-A-D, means to go in front of. But the word lead, a metal, is also spelled the same way, L-E-A-D. There's the word wind, Okay? It is what you feel when you walk out. But spelled the same way is a word wind. It's totally different than wind. You've got the word bass or bass. They're both spelled the same way, but totally different things. Those are examples of uh, homographs. A homophone, on the other hand, is a word that has the same sound as another word, but has a different meaning. Homophones may or may not have the same spelling. For example, two, two, and two. Okay? T O, I'm going to the store. T W O, the number two. Or T O O, which also means also. There's there, there, and there. And then there is pray, I pray to God, and then I pray like that's food for, for the animal to eat. Uh, it, the English language is complicated. But having that understanding will help us better interpret the Scripture because if you understand from the Greek into the English, it can get a little bit complicated, but we have to do so, especially here when it comes to this word judge. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And so to help us understand how we as Christians ought to interpret the word judge and our role when it comes to judging, Jesus delivers for us a warning followed by the command concluded by the exception to the command. And so first off, let's look at this warning. Jesus says in verse 1, "Judge not that you be not judged." This verse is probably the most quoted verse in all of scripture beyond John 3:16. It seems like every teenager, I was a youth pastor for six years, every teenager instinctively is born with this verse ingrained in their mind. You've heard it said to you before when you are trying to lovingly nudge somebody. um, Hey, man, you put on a few pounds. Maybe you might want to think about it. Judge not that you be not judged, right? That's like the response that you get back. Most people don't really know what that verse means, okay? Judge not that you be been. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is addressing a critical fault-finding spirit that prompts individuals to find fault and condemn people when they do not have all the facts nor the right to do so. That is the type of judging that Jesus is speaking of. The Christian has no right to condemn anyone. That right is solely belongs to God. God only has that right. When we judge someone in a critical fault-finding way, we are creating a standard of what we believe is acceptable. And if they don't match up to that standard, then we judge them in a condemning way. Unfortunately, when we do so, we're measuring everyone against our own standard of righteousness, which results in hypocritically judging others. Because typically, people who perform this type of judgment find no problems with their own behavior. Why? Because when a sinner creates a standard, they become the standard. When a sinner creates the standard, they become a standard. Have you ever been upset with someone when they've you felt like they were being hypocritical? More than likely, they were certainly not doing it in the right spirit, but more than likely, they were forcing you to abide by something that the Word of God doesn't even say for you to do. They've elevated their own preferences and their own um, uh, convictions, more or less, above what the Word of God actually says. The reason why the church is often accused of utilizing the type of judgment is because the congregation is oftentimes filled with self-righteous people that judge people according to their own standard of purity rather than God's standard of holiness. And so we judge people critically based upon their entertainment choices. Okay, we judge people critically based upon their attire, their music, and their habits. When we hypocritically condemn someone based upon an extra biblical standard, we are violating exactly what Jesus is telling us to do here. Judge not lest you, uh, that you be not judged. The consequence to this type of judgment, unfair type of judgment, is this same type of critical condemning judgment coming back our way. Look at what Jesus says in verse 2. He says, For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with what measure you use, you or it will be measured back to you. Jesus warns us that if we foster a critical spirit towards others, we will reap what we sow. We can be expected to be judged and condemned by others the same way or to the same extent that we judge and we condemn them. It is not necessary, and there is no glory in stirring up a hornet's nest. When I was a little kid, um, probably about Cason's age, give or take, My family was doing some work outside of their home and there was a jello jacket's nest hanging off the corner of my home. And as a seven-year-old, Cason is far smarter than I was at his age, there's not a lot of things that are clicking on in your mind. So I thought it would be necessary to take a long stick and poke it to try to get him out there. I don't know what I was thinking, but I did. And so I took a long stick and I poked at it. They weren't messing with me. It was not necessary for me to poke that hornet's nest, but I did. And one of them flew out, landed right on my eye, and stung me right here and swelled up my eye to the point that I could barely see out of it. Sometimes in churches, if we're not operating in a spirit-filled way, and we're certainly not operating according to Scripture, somebody can go up to another person and be judging them in a hypocritical way, and you're unnecessarily poking up the hornet's nest. And for us to think that it's not going to come back to us is for us to completely forego what God says here. If you're going to be a jerk, if I can put it that way, then you better be expected to be treated that way back. The Bible says in Proverbs that a man that wants friends must show himself friendly. Now before some of you say, well, are we not supposed to say anything to our loving, lovingly and to our brother and sister? We'll talk about that here a little bit later on. But when it comes to your judging, you cannot judge outside of, of, of a scriptural basis, and you certainly cannot judge out of a hypocritical means. And so let, if we can do this for, for kind, of a, kind of a clarity sake, what are we supposed to do when it comes to avoiding improper judgment. There's three things that we can do here. First off, we have to understand that the right to condemn others belongs to God alone. That's condemnation. The right to condemn others belongs to God alone. In Romans chapter 14, verse 4, Paul says, "...who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand alone." Paul then adds in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It is not our job to judge and condemn the very character of other people. That is God's role. Here's a second thing that we can do to avoid improper judgment. We understand that your standard of holiness is not the standard of holiness. You may have preferences... And you would prefer that somebody would maybe abide by your preferences. But you cannot condemn someone or critically judge someone if their preferences are not the same as yours, if the scriptures do not clearly lay that out. Your standard of holiness is not the standard of holiness. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Be not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy for I am holy. It doesn't mean for I am holy you written for he is holy. God is the standard. And so we understand that our standard of holiness is not the standard. But here's a third way that we can avoid. Recognize your need for constant grace. I was reading a book by Paul David Tripp called Dangerous Calling. And I would recommend it for anybody that's ever thinking about going into ministry. It's not just for pastors, but it's primarily geared towards pastors. Because one of the issues that us as pastors face, and it's not necessarily intentional, is that when we are in the Word of God and we are the people that is there to share the Word of God with others, we can subconsciously put ourselves on a pedestal to think that we don't need the grace of God anymore because we have arrived. And one of the most impactful things in that entire, that, that entire that book there, Paul David Tripp said this, you as a pastor have to humble yourself enough to recognize the fact that you are in need of constant grace just as much as the person in your congregation. And when you move away from that thought that you need grace just as much as that person needs grace, then you're going to move into this realm of hypocritically condemning and judging other people, which violates the word of God. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 through 10, this is the Apostle Paul, who I would say is the missionary of all missionaries, the Christian of all Christians, if you will. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And so when we move away from this, reminder that we constantly need the grace of god we fall into this realm of hypercritically judging other people so that's the warning judge not that you be not judged what it means is don't hypercritically judge other people condemning them trying to cause them to be a standard of holiness that you set forth and not the word of god he moves away from that and he goes into the command Jesus adds in verses 3 through 5, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look at a plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice the wording that Jesus has chosen to use here. He's using a series of illogical statements regarding our own state as a redeemed sinner. Jesus indicates that all Christians will have issues and problems. Jesus does not say that we should never be discerning and helpful towards our brother or sister. He says that we must address our own issues first before, in other words, not that we are perfect, but in other words, recognize our own need for grace before we can go on and highlight somebody else's problems. So let's break this down exactly to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus uses two words to describe the brevity between one's personal problems and the problems of the person whom they are critical towards. Jesus calls the problem of the people that we are critical towards a speck and our problems a plank. Now, if you really think about it, generally, the most critical people are the ones that have the biggest issues. You've seen pastors that are out there, right, that are just condemning their people left and right. And sure enough, come to find out they have been living in an adulterous affair for like 10 years but yet they want to throw shade on everybody else and i'm not just saying it's just the pastors that are at fault with this a commentator describes it this way he says we have a rosy view of ourselves and a jaundiced view of others indeed what we are often doing is seeming our own faults in others and judging them vicariously that way we experience the pleasure of self-righteousness without the pain of penitence We are oftentimes the most critical towards others' issues over the issues that we ourselves struggle with the most. For example, if you have an issue with anger, generally you're most offended when somebody responds to you in an uncontrolled, angry way. I never realized this until I had a kid, um, how many faults I have and how much it frustrates me. My son is very much like myself in a lot of ways, and some of you, probably most of you figured that out like the first time he ever came to church. He's very outgoing. I love my son to death. But for whatever reason, there are things, I feel like he frustrates me more than what my, uh, no, Kennedy's one. She's really frustrated me. But more than what Emerson does. And I told my wife, I was like, I don't know why he frustrates me so much. And I have to be careful to, like, not respond to him in, a, in an angry way. But everything that I was frustrated with him about were the things that frustrated my wife about me. And I never realized, like, like, so, for example, like, he doesn't pay attention, right? You tell him something, he doesn't pay attention. Hey, seven, I got it. I don't do a great job of paying attention, okay? Uh, he forgets something, and I get so frustrated with him about forgetting something. Man, I'm like... Yeah, I, then I realize I'm always forgetting something. I'll give you an example. I always forget my keys. I, I don't actually don't know where they are right now. Currently, um, they're always gone somewhere. And so for Christmas, like two years ago, Bryce and Janie, in their loving way, decided to get me one of those like key fobs that you like put on your keychain and you can like beep it. I lost that. I don't know where it is. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I, but the things I get frustrated with, and with the most, I've come to realize are the things that. I get frustrated with myself the most about. I get frustrated over things that I forget to do or that I didn't pay attention to do. I get really frustrated. And it's like, have you ever been there where you're like, I wish I could just fix this about myself and I'm so frustrated that I can't? I've come to realize, according to the scripture here, that what we get most frustrated with people about and we're the most ungracious towards are the things that we actually struggle with the most, that we are in the most need of grace over. So Jesus says that before you can go and address the issues of other people, you need to check yourself first and make sure that you're taking care of it so that you can respond back to them. This is, this, think about it. If, you're, if you know that you recognize your need and your issue and that you're in desperate need of God's grace, then when you recognize that same issue with somebody else, you're going to respond back to them in a gracious way. And you're going to come alongside of them and say, listen, man, I messed up. This is what I struggle with, but this is how God's grace has filled my life, and now I can actually give you information that will help you in this discipleship process rather than just beating you upside the head with truth or whatever. Jesus, this is what Jesus means when he says to make sure that you check that speck in your own eye before you go and judge other people. And so when it comes to how do, we effectively, how do we effectively help people, right, through this process, I'm going to give you three points very quickly of how we can effectively help people when it comes to helping them become more like Christ. First off, there's this. Help the believer see God's standard of holiness. Help the believer see God's standard of holiness, not yours, We can't help someone overcome sin if we ourselves are neglecting to address our own sin. Okay, you have a struggle with lust? Yeah, I'm not going to go over here and tell you that you're a sinner for having video games. That doesn't help anyone. Okay, but I am going to show you principles of Scripture of how you can overcome that lust. I'm not going to beat you upside the head over things that I've chosen in my own life to set aside because of my weaknesses and say that they should be the same thing for you. I'm going to show you from Scripture what God calls us to do and how you can effectively through Scripture and the practical means overcome that. So you point them to God's standard of holiness, not what we deem standard of holiness to be. Here's the second point. Help the believer see God's grace. It's what I believe so many people in our society today miss that about God is that the gospel is the essence of grace, but when we receive Christ, it's not where it stops. The the gospel is the forming and the conforming of us into the image of Jesus Christ, but that only happens through grace. And so when we mess up and we fail and we have the ability to overcome that, it is through the grace of God. And we help people understand God's grace. But here's the third aspect. We help the believer see your love for them. We help them see your love for them. Don't Go up to them in an unloving way. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So here's the final aspect here this morning. We looked, at the, we looked at the warning, we looked at the command, but here's the exception. In verse 6, Jesus makes a very interesting statement. He says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under your feet, and turn and tear you in pieces. What is Jesus saying here? Well, you got to look at the context of dogs and swine. Generally speaking, dogs and swine were referred to by the Jews to the Gentiles. And so, again, I don't think anyone in here is Jewish. We would all be dogs and swine according to the um, Jewish people, the Jewish nationality. But it's not what Jesus is referring to here. It, it, we actually gain a little bit more clarification to that through other portions of Scripture. In Second Peter chapter 2, verse 22, the apostle Peter says this. He says, A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. What he's referring to there is a person that is caught up in sin, a, an unbeliever who is has been given the truth, but their true self is revealed in their habits. So they look like they're they're following the Lord, they look like everything's going well, but eventually they go back to their own vomit and they go back to their own swine. They never really were truly converted or repented in the beginning with. And so it's referring to the dogs and swine in this passage here as unsaved people, those that are not followers. So whether it be Gentiles or Jews or whatever the case may be, it's not the nationality itself, it's their status in their relationship with the Lord. The unsaved are swine pigs. okay so jesus says this and then he goes on to say do not cast your pearls before them what is he talking about well the pearls in this particular reference here is talking about the kingdom of god it is the truth of the kingdom it is salvation it is it is the truth of god's word as it pertains to the kingdom What he says here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, is that we should not take the holy, valuable teachings and the preachings of God and continue to cast that before a group of people that reject it over and over and over again. Literally, Jesus says that if you are sharing the gospel with someone and they continue to reject it over and over and over again, do not continue to do so. Pastor Brandon, I've always been told that we need to pray for those that are unsafe. Yes, and continue to do so. But Jesus says, in essence, don't consume your time with those that continue to reject. He told the apostles this when he says to go out there and minister, right? He says um, uh, to the apostles, he says that when you go into a city and they reject you and you share the gospel, what does he say? Shake off the dust of your feet and go on to the next city. You continue to share the gospel. We're here on a Sunday morning. We're going to continue to share the gospel in our community. We're going to continue to do so, okay? But if somebody continues to reject over and over and over again, we're not going to continue to to focus solely on them and them alone. We're going to move on, and we're going to continue to share those, and we look for people as God brings them our way whose heart is receptive to that. Now, we're not in the business of saving people. That's up to God, but we do continue to see where God's leading and how he's opening up the door, and we follow suit. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 through 46, it's this parable of the pearl of great price. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. He's talking about those that that genuinely desire the kingdom of God, the truth of God's word. They're going to give up everything in order to pursue God. Actually, it might have been Garth. I don't remember, but I was sharing with Garth a long time ago, and, and Garth grew up in a mission field. His dad's here today, and so he heard a lot of teaching and truths. And you actually might have shared this to Garth. I don't know. Um, but I was, I was talking about like when teen ministry, right? You have teens that come, and, and, and it's, just like, it's just like most youth groups. You've got your front row kids, and then you've got your back row kids, okay? It doesn't apply that here because, Elaine, you're God-fearing, okay? Even though you're in the back. But, but, but we sometimes, as a youth pastor, I got so consumed with trying to preach to the back row kids that I, f- not intentionally, I overlooked the front row kids. And what I mean by that is, generally speaking, the teens that sat in the front row are ones that are on fire and they're hungry for God's word. That are ones in the back generally are ones that are only there because their mom and dad said, you need to be there. And so they're there. It doesn't mean mean that we give up on them. But that does mean that our priorities do need to shift and focus on those that are hungry, that are desirous for God's Word, that are desirous for His teaching, and we pour our lives into them, not completely forsaking those that have rejected, but not making that our number one priority. That is what Jesus is saying here. Do not cast your pearls before swine because they've continuously rejected it I'm building my kingdom. Look for those that I bring your way that are hungry and focus majority of your time upon them. So there is a level of discernment that needs to go play here. And so as Christians, how do we take all of this to heart? To sum up this entire passage, Jesus highlights the urgency of our time here on earth. He wants us to realize that our time here on earth to build the kingdom of God is extremely short. Therefore, do not get caught up by hypercritically judging other people. Rather, lovingly confront your brother and sister, helping them in their, in their journey to continue to be more sanctified as they grow to be like Christ. That is our priority. In addition, Jesus says, don't get caught up plowing hard ground. Continue to spread the seed of the gospel across that land. Not consuming our time with a group of people that consistently reject the truth of God's word. Life is short. Let's get busy loving others and sharing the hope of Jesus with as many people as we possibly can. All through the grace and the love of God.